kill your silos, the only show about operations that dares ask the fundamental question at the heart of every operator's mind. That question, of course, is there must be a better way to manage all this shit. And I'm here to prove to you that there is, and it's called revenue operations. Each episode, I will host one of the innovators of operations and ask them their thoughts. Today, I'll be speaking with Leslie Mertz, who is the business development manager at Aurora Solar, a disruptor in the solar industry. Is that safe to say, Leslie, a disruptor in the solar industry? We are disruptors in the solar industry. Amazing. I yeah. nailed it uh, right off the bat. That's a point for me. Yes. Uh, Leslie is a revenue operations powerhouse and is a member of the Revenue Collective and the, the, Rev Ops, or the Rev Genius community. Welcome, Leslie, to Kill Your Silos. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. Uh, my first question off the bat when I saw you are part of these other uh, organizations, are you also a member of our ROI community, which is the Revenue Ops Influencers community? I am. I'm not oh. sure if I'm a bunny or a goat, though. I'm still trying. Oh, wait. To yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I think I'm a, a bunny goat. Uh, yeah, so the ROI community is our revenue operation influencer community where we talk about things, and I'm hoping that it kind of spans to be a continuation of the show off of it. So if you have questions for Leslie, she's on there. So please join and ask Leslie all your questions. I'm going to get you spammed. You're going to get so <laughs> many messages. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's get started. Um, one of the things that I always ask guests when they first come in, and I know that they've been exposed to revenue operations, which is how has revenue operations influenced your goals as an organization, Aurora? And you know, how does RevOps fit into how you think about the customer journey and uh, servicing your customer? Well, we certainly um, have been developing our RevOps position within our org over time. You know, we are a series A organization, in hyper growth mode with our industry that's also in hyper growth mode as well. And so bringing in that function, but bringing it into the organization from a cross-functional perspective uh, is very important. I think if you have teams that, you know, and I, I love your show working in silos, then you're not going to have that collaboration and you can't have not only a seamless customer journey, but also find where you have more opportunity. And so I think RevOps really supports that across marketing, sales, and customer success. One of the things that I'm working on right now is what I call, you know, an operations maturity model. And it's it's material that we haven't released yet, but I'm talking about it on this podcast to get, you know, influencers like your opinion on it, which is, I think when you very first come into an organization uh, or your series A, but maybe this is a more experience-based uh, Series A organization with Aurora, most operators come in with this idea of being intuition based. It's, you know, someone walks into a room and says, hey, there's a problem with this. And the two people work it out and they use their uh, sort of intuition to figure it out and say, okay, I think that's a problem. Let's fix it. Then you move into the second pl place, which is experiential. So you bring a bunch of people in who have very rich uh, backgrounds and they use a lot of their experience to guide the organization operationally and decide what's important, what's not. And then the, the holy grail where I think revenue operations actually is valuable is you become a customer first organization operationally where you're looking at the gaps in your customer buying experience um, using things like we use a framework called 3VC and we use a, uh, other work like durability testing to stress test our, our buying experience. Have you guys implemented something like 3VC or, or any of these durability testings within your organization? So yes, and I love the 3VC and I saw the... Um the post that you guys had um, on the Go Nimbly site. And awesome. so I think looking at volume, velocity, value, and conversion is, is definitely important and plays a key role, again, in having that framework that's going to support 
across functional collaboration to support overall the customer engagement. So, you know, when you do think about volume, most people are going to think, you know, between marketing and sales. Um, Also, you may though think also about expansion revenue falling into that bucket as well. If you have a land and expand uh, sales flywheel, then you may actually lean more uh, in that regard. Uh, for some of your volume as you're building out mid-market and enterprise teams. Mm-hmm. So I actually lead the BDR team at Aurora. Um, we have a great team and, you know, ICP fit. I know that's something that you uh, at Go Nimbly that you guys are really strong on in terms of making sure that you are setting correct demos. And, you know, I can't say this enough that even when I was a seller as well, having an opportunity teed up for you, but it, then at the end of the day, it's not really an opportunity, right? right? And having that time blocked off on your calendar, we've all been there. And so, you know, for us, we've created what do we really uh, feel is a qualified opportunity. So our, our revenue leadership team has defined that together. So we're all stakeholders in terms of marketing sales and uh, customer success in terms of what is an opportunity versus just filling volume. So I know... For some organizations that may be more transactional, maybe volume is is more of a key play. Um, but if you are in the B2B space, having that that key definition and what really is the qualification cr- criteria you're looking for, and then really being able to track it and then A-B test it, because it could be that some of your qualification criteria for certain ICP groups could be changing over time, or if you're yep. moving into adjacent markets. Yeah. So a couple of things that you kind of got in there that I just want to have a discussion with you about. Um, so I think that we are too often focused, you know, you mentioned all the stuff that you guys are doing. And, and the, the point that I really loved at the end was that uh, you called them sales flywheels. I call them uh, buying experiences, which is that there is a different buying experience for a transactional customer versus a B2B enterprise customer versus even maybe a specialized segment that you service. Um, if you service like a governmental, as an example, those are all different buyer experiences because they actually need to function differently. You know, there's this word that, you know, I mentioned here, which is the customer journey that I feel like has become this, a way of a way for marketing and sales and, and sort of the revenue team to strong arm, strong arm the organization into alignment when in reality, the customer journey is usually based on how the organization wants the customer behave, not in the actual buying experience that customers experience. So I've started to see this, this delta between what the customer journey people think the customer journey is when we go into organizations and work with them versus what the actual buying experience is with the customers who said yes to the product. Do right. you find that similar thing and, and, and find that gap to be, be true, not even in your organization, but just in a thought process? Uh, in a theoretical sense? Well, it's interesting because we've looked at a lot of infographics for enablement materials and so forth. And when you look at buyer journeys, some try to make it linear and then others have even seen like balls of yarn <laughs> with yeah. arrows going out. And that's more realistic, right? Yeah. Um, especially as you add in multiple stakeholders. Uh, and I think that's another piece of it. So we're talking about customer buyer journey but really it's a customer's buyer journey once you start to have as many stakeholders you do. And so how do you, you know, if you're targeting a VP of sales, maybe they're maybe your core decision maker, uh, but your influencers is right up there. And especially now with everybody being remote, they may even have more of a vote at the table than they would have 
uh, pre-COVID. So when you do look at their buyer journey, it's not even the same. It's, you know, sure, they might be engaging with your brand through different channels that you offer, but also their engagement and their conversations. And it's becoming more and more apparent that you need to have either a champion or somebody internally that you can have a voice with in an ongoing conversation, especially as you go up in ACB, as to what's happening uh, at, that, at that buyer's table within that account. Um, as you start to look at <clears throat> practices like um, ABM and buyer intent data and so forth, that's really helpful in terms of devising a strategy, but you're still not on the inside. And right. so being able to have that voice on the inside, I think is becoming more and more relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, everybody's net new and numbers are down. I, I've tended, um, so, you know, a lot of our, our theories and practices are things that, you know, from studying RevOps and building RevOps teams and, and managing a consulting firm that goes in and, and acts as revenue operators for organizations. What, I, what I've started to find over time is that uh, what we are expecting the customer to behave like is not real to how the teams are organized or how the teams function internally within a business, right? And it's this kind of, it's, it's this kind of double-edged sword of we have to make everyone sort of a, a able, we, we need to make the sales rep or the BDR be able to be somewhat of a marketer because the customer might come in in different perspectives. And then I started to say, well, this is an issue with looking at prospects and looking at all these ICPs. But if we go to the customers who, who did say yes, and we ask them a simple question of what would, what could we have done or what experiences eroded trust in the buying journey for you that you would have either purchased more product or signed a longer contract, especially in B2B enterprise sales, or, you know, you would have brought in other people in your department so that we could have been more cross-functional, probably a little bit more important to software sales as, a, as an example of that one. But what I found is that not enough people are actually doing win analysis. And, and when they do win analysis, they want to know how that person got there, like uh, from a, a marketing lead to generation perspective, right? right? They're not actually saying, where did we, where did we fuck up? You know, where do, where do we mess up for you? Where was the experiences where you're like, oh, I'm gonna have to use a little political capital here in order to get this through. And I find that when I start to ask those questions of uh, buyers, it really starts to open up these doors that revenue operations can expand the net uh, volume, the net value of each customer, right? So we say our goal is to increase the net value of every yes you have by 26% by bringing revenue operations to you, right? So it's not so much of winning more, it's about getting more out of the ones we do win, which so happens to have a domino effect that you end up winning more because you're fixing gaps in your process. How, how much have you done with or seen in the industry people start to look at, especially during COVID, I think this has become something that I've really championed during COVID, of the people who say, yes, we need to analyze how they said yes and what their pains were in that experience. Is that something that you guys are talking about as an executive team or that you're starting to see in these communities that you're part of? Yeah, we are. And certainly in uh, the communities that I'm part of, it is part of the conversation is where were we winning? Why did we win this deal? Uh, exactly what you're saying. And you know, RevOps can really support that process through an integrated tech stack. So when your customer success team is very much aligned with sales, you can look at what that customer journey was. And then also with their own support tickets and what their relationship now is with customer success, start to see where there may have been opportunities during the buyer's journey 
that maybe you didn't even address. And maybe you're right. Maybe that deal size could have been bigger, or maybe there could have been more aha moments during the engagement process that we missed. Because even looking at one particular persona of an ICP, you're still never going to capture everything. Yeah, right. um, and certainly elongating your sales cycle is not, it's not um, happy for you as a seller or them as the buyer, correct? They want to solve whatever problem they're looking to solve. Right. Uh, so I was just reading before the podcast that growth is up by three X from what it normally is. So growth of accounts are up and everyone's going, well, okay, that's great. Yeah. But I think that's a true indicator that we're leaving far too much on the table during the initial sale that now suddenly growth and upsell is up so much. Yeah. I know that people are going to trust the vendors that they're already used to, but ultimately I think that's saying, Oh, there was probably more on this, but we were in this cycle back, you know, 18 months ago of just get the yes, move forward. Just get the yes. I, I often think that people, when they say we have a land and expand strategy, all they mean is that we want customers and we are probably trying to raise money and we just want new customers on versus it really is truly a land and expand strategy because most of the organizations that I work with, when they have a land and expand strategy, I go, okay, so now how are you going to expand? They go, well, when the customer needs more stuff, we'll sell it to them. Um, how much do you see uh, this idea of signing the bigger check in the front end of the process, or is it still a rush to sort of just get net new you know, customers in the front door? I think it does depend on how you go to market. I mean, we are seeing more product-led growth sales models come about with like say a freemium version. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you see that with, I believe it's Git, GitLab. Yep. Premium version, for example. And clearly they're a very successful company. <laughs> right. Um, so I think that when you're looking at how your product fits within the market, within the model, um, where does it fall within the value chain? Where are you actually disrupting within that value chain? Are you disrupting it enough that um, signing that larger net contract is more viable upfront? Or is someone going to want to play with the product a little bit more? And then you are looking more land and expand. Mm -hmm. I think part of it depends on the product of the company and the temperature of the market. Yeah. One of the things that I, you know, talk about is this, the silo syndrome thing that, you know, we didn't make up, but I've seen it impact every business I've ever been part of is I was VP of product at a couple of SaaS companies before I started going nimbly, definitely in the SaaS world, it existed and definitely going into businesses as a, as a consulting organization, we've seen it. And, you know, this syndrome, you know, it comes from lack of collaboration, internal use of misalignment mis language, competitiveness between different teams. You know, there's lots of reasons for the silo kind of mentality to begin. I think it's totally natural, especially in hyper growth organizations where what you were six months ago is not what you are today. And so there's this little bit of protectionism that happens with internally in these organizations. Mm -hmm. What have you come across in your roles around, you know, what are some ways that you've seen silo syndrome emerge or, or that you've been able to knock that down and kill, you know, kill your silos for lack of a better word, since that's the name of the show. Yeah. So I, I think I've worked at legacy companies where silo syndrome was certainly predominant. Everybody was within their core function, within their role and, you know, stay kind of stay in your lane. Mm -hmm. And there was certainly not only a lack of collaboration, but the customer um, was probably hurt the most by that because 
I didn't really understand where marketing was coming from with their branding message. What data were they looking at where they felt that that particular asset or that particular webinar was going to be helpful? Um, you know, customer success, of course, always runs great campaigns. You know, fast forward to where I work today, we don't have that type of culture. So mm -hmm. if, if the co-founders of the company um, have a cross-functional mindset and that everybody is going to collaborate together and that we're going to have different pods across different functions of the organization, you don't have those silos. But then what you do need to have is just more organization around program management and, and projects and so forth. So you still can drive results. I think one of the reasons that companies still like silos is because your metrics and your KPIs are very clear yeah. and, and you're focused on that. You can't kind of go off and start your own skunk work project uh, if you're you know, working in a silo. Um, but overall, I think more cross-functional collaboration really does breed a better product, better experience, um, especially today where with marketing and sales, attribution is becoming a lot more blurred, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Who, who, who attributes to what, how did it get said? You know, customers are coming in from every aspect of, of that initial touch point and when did they actually become engaged? You know, one thing during the pre-interview that you were talking about that I thought was interesting is the democratization of information as a fundamental nail in the coffin of silos, right? And in order to keep that down, what does it actually take in, in an organization functionally to actually democratize the information and, and the strategy? I think you just pull the bandaid off. I think you just say, we're going to do this, obviously come up with a plan. Again, you have to have a team that governance rolls up to. I think governance this year um, and across a lot of the revenue groups that I belong to has been on the uptick, even though we don't have GDERP here yet. Yeah. Um, it's on people's minds, especially if you've been um, predominantly cold calling. If you have a go-to-market strategy that is heavy on the phones, you are starting to think through, well, how is that going to change? or everybody's working from home, I can't use personal IP addresses for some of the technology I've bought, how is that going to impact it? So governance policy is very, very important. I think it's on everybody's whiteboard if it wasn't for this year, for 2021. Yep. Um, that being said, you establish key stakeholders for that and you just move forward. So is, is in the old world, it would be like, if you gave a BDR too much information, they're going to hang that, like there would be this mindset of if you give the, the uh, BDR too much information, they're going to hang themselves with it. Right. There's it was sort of a looking down at specific roles and saying for this role, they don't need this information or, you know, a, a sales rep doesn't need to worry about uh, implementation strategy as an example. How do you align those groups and, and essentially sort of start to build this like, no, our BDR is doing a BDR role, but they're part of the revenue team, right? Or they're part right. of the go-to-market team. Um, how do you start to um, keep the core function that you need so that person needs to turn something in order for the machine to run, yet the machine needs to be run on more than just, okay, every 30 seconds, turn this knob, right? Because then you're just turning the knob and if the machine gets gucked up, then the machine falls apart. So how do you find that balance in an organization and, and what just zooming in high level, what do those conversations actually look like about bringing respect for cross-functional work? 
Well, I mean, there's several ways that we do that at our company. I mean, one is just in, in and of itself, all hands. Um, so if you have a team, large company team meetings um, frequently that where people are able to come and present um, projects they're working on, the success of their teams, and not just maybe a manager or a VP, but somebody who is an IC and even somebody who's, you know, pretty fresh into their career um, and is able to present, you start to show that everybody can contribute uh, to the company, right? Everybody yeah. has, has a voice in, in what's going on, especially in a startup culture. So there, there's one aspect to that. Then I would say the next piece is in terms of the BDR team, I'm glad you brought that up because so often, or whether it's SDR, BDR, could be an MDR, you are helping to develop revenue for the entire organization. But if you as a leader see it more of a smile and dial position, spray and pray, if you don't see it as a strategic position and you're not providing them with a robust tech stack and strategy and teaching them what is medic or we use champ qualification, for example, um, then their role will feel diminished and you will also receive diminished results. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I, I, one thing that you hit on in the first part of, of your answer, which is I see that the organizations that are really getting strategic alignment are not having these readout meetings where they're reporting out the KPIs. Instead, they're reporting, they're having these like all hands meetings or functional meetings where people are talking about the thought process that goes into getting the KPIs uh, versus the actual KPIs. Because the KPIs kind of build this mentality of a machine that people just function in, whereas the other thing where people are coming and showing the work they're working on in the function sort of builds a level of respect, even amongst, you know, say a very senior sales rep being like, wow, I could never handle man manipulating all this technology before I pick up the phone and call someone, right? Uh, that level of respect to show people what they actually do for a living and what their function actually requires, I think is a, is a thing that is starting to emerge as an overall human strategy that makes people feel more fulfilled at their job, but also has a lot of uh, respect, which I think one of the core concepts of breaking down silos that are required is you have to have a respect for every function within the role, like within the go-to-market team as being necessary, right? Uh, and, and to your point of like, you know, we can hire any kid out of college to dial and for our products, like, well, you're going to get diminished results by that mindset, Mr. CEO or a CRO. And that it was not really helpful in the long term for the organization. Yeah. I really, I really like that. Uh, awesome. We are going to play a game now. Hard transition. <laughs> okay. uh, so the hard transition is this is called lightning round. So I'm going to give you, and there's going to be some infographic that comes up and lightning and Zeus's hand and all that stuff. I'm going to give you two things and you tell me either or, and you can give a little, a little, uh, little look into your mind if you want. Um, so here we go. Fiction or nonfiction. I'll go with, I'm scared. I don't know. Nonfiction. Nonfiction. Okay. Yes. So you, you like the, the, the facts. Let's get to the facts. All right. We're, we're, we're starting to build a persona for you. Uh, introvert or extrovert? Oh, you know, people consider me an extrovert. So we'll go with that. Okay. So an extrovert that wants the facts. Boom. We got that next thing. Art or music. Oh, well, I love them both, but music. Music. Okay. So we're going to be find you reading a book about a band and then telling everyone about it. What's, what's the band? What's, what's the nonfiction book that you read about a band? 
um, a book about a band. Or, I have, music, or some kind of music thing. I mean, I used to work at a record label. Awesome. What, what label? What label? Let's let's do this. The Conspiracy for George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. Wow, that is not something I expected to learn on this podcast. Probably not. Leslie Mertz, uh, a funkaholic. Yes, very much. <laughs> I once sang backup on stage at a concert for George. It was amazing, amazing. Uh, I grew up playing music, and so uh, uh, I also owned a record label when I was very young. So, uh, yeah. So I have a. So there's the connection. See, that's how the lightning round game works. Now everyone knows about you. Uh, Perfect. You need to tell me uh, what a. Uh, what concert? And if I can find it on YouTube, I'd love to see. You oh gosh, what concert? I, um, I mean, George does so many. It would, yeah, I know it's hard to follow any, any of his live stuff. Yeah. It was in Southern California though. You've stumped me though, but it was at a fairly big show. Awesome. I, I, I honestly don't remember. It was, uh, a, a well, we're not going to ask why Leslie, we'll, okay, we'll leave sure. that for another day. All right. <laughs> back to the business questions. Um, one of the things that I like to do in the second half of the show is talk about people who want to make a transition into revenue operations. So these, and I, I know that's kind of something that you are passionate about is helping people find uh, a way into our world. Um, and so I, I have a couple of questions there. One of the first ones, which is, you know, what's one reason you would give to another operator when recommending a transition to RevOps? So what's a reason to become revenue operator versus a traditional operator, sales ops or marketing ops or something like that? I think you're very interested in the stories that data can tell. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at a more traditional sales ops role, people really gravitate towards the expert in Salesforce. And you think maybe of a Salesforce administrator, which is a highly important role today uh, and is, is very crucial. When I think you think more of the revenue operator, though, you do think of somebody who um, uh, again, is looking at the customer life cycle and what is the data at this particular organization with their particular sales methodologies and their particular motions? What are the business questions we want to answer? And how can I leverage the technology that this company has or needs to have to answer those questions to the key stakeholders? Mm -hmm. So how do you, to answer your question, how do you move into that type of a role? Uh, one is you be on the commercial side of the business. Um, I think preferably client client facing. Um, there's so much value, even if it's being a BDR or SDR for a year. And I've seen people who have been in successful careers and decided to go and do that role for a year because they really wanted to understand a market, for example. Um, so be closely aligned in some way with the customer and, and have that experience under your belt somewhere. Um, it's incredibly helpful to know how to not necessarily just sell, but do discovery with a customer, learn who they are, learn what it's like to be in their shoes and their day to day. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not going to gain that experience, then jump on a conversation intelligence tool and listen to calls, listen to tape, See if you can participate in any workshops that the revenue team might be holding for customer success teams or the sales team, but really understand what that, what that process is and get as close to that relationship as possible. Because when you're looking at the data, you want to obviously pick up the threads that are going to tell the story historically, but also be forward looking, correct? Um, you know, there's way too much information that's more laggard 
and you want to be able to see forward, especially in today's environment. Absolutely. So just because I think this is a really important tactical thing that we can say, like become sort of a data narrative person that you are drawing. I use the word insights a lot. So you're not giving analytics, you're driving insights from the data and you're sharing those insights with people either visually or in storytelling or whatever uh, to have empathy for the actual customer and try to understand their day-to-day perspective, either through becoming like a BDR um, that's kind of understanding the internal function, but also it, uh, getting closer with the customers through, you know, Chorus or Gong or whatever tool you might use uh, or interviews or whatever method you can get to, uh, to really understand the impact of the data and the role and try to marry those two things are, are kind of the, the feedback I'm getting from what you just said. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, um, you know, looking to move into that role you know, understand not only the commercial side of the business, but then also, and even if it's a certification, learn a little bit about data science, learn about those analytics, whether you're using a BI tool that's, you know, more widely used, or if it's something that might even be in-house and more proprietary, but um, at least have some of the the best practices under your belt Mm -hmm. because you are working cross-functionally. And so understanding, of course, you know, what are the metrics that are important to the marketing team? What are the metrics that are important to sales? And then also what are the metrics that are important to customer success? So, um, you know, that is table stakes for sure for that role. And then understanding the stories that everybody is looking to, to learn and, and then hopefully share in their all hands meeting. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that I think that I think you believe in, um, but that is critical in my opinion is a sales ops person is obsessed with sales or a marketing ops person is obsessed with marketing. You use the word cross-functional, which people say all of the time, but they don't really define what the word cross-functional actually means. And to me, cross-functional is that we're looking for someone who is more of a generalist, a Swiss army knife kind of operator who is going to follow the story to the place that the story is leading them um, in order to solve the problem versus going, well, this is, I'm only uh, a fairy tale character in uh, a medieval time, so I can't go to this sci-fi space. I have to just stay in this zone, and that's kind of where I operate. Um, and I, we do a lot around trying to figure out what skill gaps um, sales ops people have or marketing ops people have and try to teach them how to be more of a generalist. Do you believe in the, the generalist? And, the, and that's kind of gotten a weird rap. So I started moving to, we want people with dynamic range, right? Which is kind of a fancier corporate way of saying uh, generalism. Um, but but is, is that what you mean when you mean cross-functional? Someone that can move across the different elements and be and follow the story to where it needs to go? I do. And I, and I have seen Swiss Army knife used many times. Um, uh, so I agree with that. However, though, you do need to have, and it's not that you need to be an expert because in being an expert would also mean um, years uh, or hours of experience as well. But it's really important in any type of core role. So if you sit in the middle, whether it's if you're sitting in the middle of customer success, marketing and sales, or if you were sitting in the middle of product, product marketing and you know UX design, for example, that you truly understand what are the key metrics for all of those groups and not only the metrics, but then what is, they have a particular tech stack. What were they trying to gain with that tech stack? Where is the lift within 
that area of their function? And then how can you leverage that data and help them also not only with their data story, but then I think also um, optimization as well of those teams. Because if you're finding and you're following the data and you're following the data story, that's great. But also it may be that the data story is off. And so I think also the operational perspective as well is also being able to understand that tech stack uh, option. So it's, it's a unique person that can that fills that role. Yeah, and I often say like, you know, series A, if you're under and, you know, different series mat matter not that much anymore because some organizations hold out and are, are, you know, like we are, you know, someplace in a, a way that if we raise money right now, we'd probably be a series B or C company, even though we've never raised money before just because of where we are as an organization, but you would still call that our series A. But typically when you have a series A organization, um, you, you are trying to fill the gaps that the rest of maybe the executive leadership team doesn't have as part of your revenue operations team. I think it's really important to have range as a team, but it doesn't mean that every person on the team can do all jobs. So I think it's really important for a CRO or a head of revenue operations to say, hey, look, it's about having a ranged team. I don't care if Jim is our tech guy, that's all Jim can do, but we don't need 10 Jims. We need to fill out the rest of this, this infrastructure, this framework in order to be a, a functional organization. I like to think that most people come to go nimbly with a, I like to think of the IDO E format, which is they have a line across uh, the top or on this, on this way of something that they've probably already specialized in before they've ever come and worked for us. And our job is to find the three rings of the E that they can go the, this way and have some range on. They're always gonna have that fundamental thing that they've come with that maybe they're inherently good at or they went to school for or whatever it might be. And you would be pretty stupid as an organization not to utilize that, right? Not to utilize someone who has a great mind for data science, especially if they went to school for it. But also if that's all they have, they're gonna solve every problem that way. And it can become an, an issue within an organization. One of the things I talk about a lot, and, and I just found this out, so I'm sharing it with you because I think it's cool, is that old saying of, you know, a jack of all trades is a master of none. Um, that, that's what people say, and it's usually written as a shorthand to sort of say that specialization is, is more powerful than being a jack of all trades. But that's actually not the whole quote. And the masters of none thing only got added in the 19th century. So it's really a jack of all trades is a master of none, but often better than a master of one, right? Uh -huh. And so that's the end of that whole sentence. It's actually a, a positive thing towards range and dynamics that have sort of been used. So I'd like to, yeah, it's, it's okay to be a jack of all trades. You're actually gonna have more range and be able to help the organization better. We particularly learn this very early on as startup organizations, right? Mm -hmm. Where everyone's wearing all hats. And I speak to a lot of CEOs who are going from A to C basically that's when the organization really changes for them and they don't have the context of the day-to-day -day anymore. And they go back in the old days, everyone used to just do everything and it was so great and I felt so good. And now I don't know what people are doing. Well, it's because everyone's been put into these specialized roles and segmented so much that it's hard for those people to communicate to each other. That's another reason why that silo syndrome comes in. So I think it's really important to push your individuals to be um, more dynamic you know, one of the things that I, I saw that you're passionate about, and so am I, is bringing women into this space uh, of a revenue operations as an emerging market, right? Um, I think that a lot of marketing ops people historically have kind of been women for whatever reason, and they get into marketing. Um, and I find a lot of marketing ops people are good transitions to rev ops because in marketing, you really have to be technical and strategic. 
Whereas in sales ops, you can sometimes just be the forecast person or you can be the Salesforce person. There's a little bit more of segmentation even within sales ops as a, as a practice. What, mm-hmm. what, what are your advice for women trying to get into this industry or how, you know, what avenues should they take in order to, uh, to find themselves as, as a head of revenue operations one day? I think uh, one is reach out to networks. And if you're not in one, start building one. Um, you know, given that I have, I do run the BDR team. Um, I'm always encouraging everybody to join a Slack community, um, you know, go online, find, you know, CEOs, <clears throat> VPs of sales, VP of marketing, CMOs, and so forth. Reach out to them, see if they'd be willing to sync with you for 15 minutes, you know, make yourself visible and, and learn more about, the changing role because our organizations are changing rapidly because of technology. And so to think, you know, CMO or, or VP of sales or CRO 15 years ago is very different than what it is today. Um, and so how is your career planning and career, career laddering going to move forward? You need to be an extremely active participant. Mm-hmm. And so being, being a part of the community is important. Um, so that's my first piece of advice. Second is, Decide where you want to be. Do you want to start off and learn about marketing? Do you want to learn about sales? Or do you want to learn about customer success? And then start to tool yourself and build yourself around that. I mean, so many great SaaS companies in the enablement spaces for those three functions have huge resource centers. And many of them now have certifications as well. So if there's a certification, so HubSpot, that's very, very uh, common get your HubSpot certifications, show your interest and dedication to becoming an expert in that. And then, you know, start to look at the rest of the tech stack and then start to really grow some of your data skills, storytelling and so forth. There's so many great classes. You could do Udemy and Coursera, but also schools like Cornell, MIT, Northwestern, they all have, you know, six, eight week certifications to help tell data with a story for non-data scientists. And so, yeah, I really recommend building that for yourself. That way, you know, when you're presenting yourself for, even if it's an associate level role, not a manager role, um, it shows that you've really created a plan for yourself, that you have intentionality behind it. And, you know, find executive sponsors. You know, people used to often say mentors, but now it's, executive sponsors, other people that are within that industry that you've been speaking with um, that could vouch for you because not every great referral is going to come from, you know, where you work. And sometimes it can't come from where you work. Um, So I think building those executive sponsorships is important as well. I I definitely agree. And, and, you know, one of my big things, pet peeves with how operators have been looked at is the idea that, you know, it's a place that's not becoming a support class anymore. It's becoming its own department who reports to the CRO or CEO that sits right alongside of the go-to-market functions. And it's, it's about operating on behalf of the customer and, and working with the go-to-market teams to expand and have a North Star of creating more revenue for the business, right? And I think when we start to see that 
individuals can move into that role, especially women. And it's looked at as a, not a cost center, but a revenue generation center of finding these gaps and plugging these gaps with the same amount of resources we had last month with the same amount of people. And it's operationally driving the business. I think that's going to be very beneficial for lots of people's careers to move into that. So I always say like, this is a career that you can get in the very early ground in that people are probably not going to be paying attention to how strategically important it is. But if you can raise a business's overall, uh, you know, value by 26% off each customer, you better believe that you're going to end up having a big voice at the table. And I use uh, the attribution of marketing as an example. Marketers have a lot of money now because they did prove to some degree that advertising works and marketing works and they got more clout within the revenue team because of that. And I think we're about to see the same thing happen with revenue operations and that being a strategic driver and hopefully in the future CS too, because I know CS is still trying to emerge from being a cost center to an organization to a revenue center for an organization. But I really think that's, you know, something I would tell people is, you know, in 10 years, this is going to be a totally different landscape. Whereas if you're in marketing ops right now, or you're in sales, I don't know how different it's going to be in 10 years. I'm sure it's going to be more integrated and people are going to have to know more, but it's, it's not going to be a brand new business, you know, where you're going to see 25, 30 LinkedIn job postings for people looking for revenue operation manager or revenue operation analyst. I think that's going to be something very beneficial to people. I agree with you. And, and certainly five years from now, the landscape of uh, sales and marketing will probably shift. Yeah. I, yeah, of course it always shifts, but, but I think that, you know, I think definitely there's going to be a, a, a change in the guard of organizations. I think sales and marketing people who can act more like, our job is revenue are going to succeed in that world too. I think that's becoming more blurry tools like drift and other tools are uh, conversational marketing are making it like, who's the sales rep. I don't know. Like who cares? The customer wants to talk to us right now. Um, so I, I think that's really awesome. Those the last part. The last question I have is the last word where I give you the uh, last question of the day to me, Jason Reichel, uh, brilliant CEO of go nimbly and revenue operations. What a question do you have for me? So what do you think is the most significant piece of a revenue tech stack? The most significant piece of revenue tech stack is having a good understanding of the difference between, and I don't care where you do this, between account, emergent account behavior, which shows interest at an account level and personalized information about contacts. Um, and so I think that we have all this intent data, we have all these account things, that are happening within an account, but you don't know individuals who they're happening at. And then we have engagement data at those individuals. And I think that uh, I'm working on a new thing which marries those two and says, hey, this account is active. These prospects are not. Here's what you do about it. These prospects are active, but these accounts are not. Here's what you do about it. And starting to break down roles and functions at that level, primarily right now in Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but that's an integration hub, so it could be any tool, but I actually think understanding fundamentally that there's a difference between account behavior and personal behavior. And you can't just write an email saying, oh, I, Hey, I see that you're looking for revenue operations, Mr. Jason Reichel. Um, that may or may not be true. Maybe my assistant was looking for it. Um, but understanding how to build a formula that actually works, you know, I think tools like Engageo and other tools have tried to do that in the past but I've kind of failed. So I'm working on a new model and I think it's pretty interesting and cool. Oh, I can't wait to hear about it in the chat. Thank you. Uh, very nice speaking with you. Uh, do you want to sing us out or are you good just saying bye? Um, I'm just saying I'm good saying bye. <laughs> okay. Well, it was really nice meeting you. Yeah. Really nice meeting you. <laughs> Take I'm, care, Jason. Thank you. Bye. Bye.